You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. Some people talk about selling to senior level decision makers, making calls, and selling based on value. Other people talk about process tools and measurement of data, systems thinking, analyzing causes and effects. But not very many people talk about how these things can be brought together to motivate people and create wealth for everyone. This is Michael Webb, and welcome to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. I'm delighted today to introduce you to Greg Helfrich. Greg is the National Operations Manager at Elris Aggregate Systems, and he's the Operations Manager not just for Canada, but also for the U.S. So welcome here, Greg. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, it's it's. Uh, I, I wanted to invite you here because uh, I wanted to invite Greg here. He has a story that I know uh, you all in the audience are going to be interested in. Um, Greg had purchased my book, Sales Process Excellence, and as I chatted with him on the phone, he started describing a way that Elris has homegrown um, a sort of a sales process, a method of selling value. And it's very well thought out. And I knew that uh, a lot of people would like to hear about this. So, uh, Greg, um, give us a, a little 30 or 45 seconds here of your background, how you got to be where you are. Um, sure. I got into consulting uh, on our operations and lean perspective um, after leaving the food industry back in the late 90s. I was... Uh, trained in Six Sigma and started consulting. And I was doing some supply chain consulting for LRUS. And um, they just said, well, we'd really rather have you just work with us. And so I joined as national operations manager in 2008. And the position has evolved from being really strictly working in manufacturing and process supply chain and engineering to now being responsible for sales and marketing. I, I actually, my education is in marketing. Um, but as we expanded into the United States and, and grew, my role just basically evolved with it. And so I wasn't necessarily in charge of marketing all that time, but just got more and more involved. And because I was a buyer, I just had insights into how our customers were thinking and I could bring something to the table. And this is, this is where it just basically evolved from. Okay. So um, in your role here as National Operations Manager slash Sales VP, I guess, right? Pretty much. I'm Essentially, a Chief Operating Officer is, is really, uh, if you had to give it a conventional title, we just haven't, we're not huge on titles here. And so we just haven't, haven't changed much. Okay. So. And, and you serve the uh, mining, rock quarrying, uh, road construction industry, is that fair? It's primarily, yeah, it, it, we, we like to say that um, everybody needs to make big rocks into small rocks uh, in mining. Uh, everything like concrete and asphalt are ubiquitous. They surround us everywhere and all that rock has to be quarried or, or mined out of a, a sand and gravel operation processed. And, and it looks simple, but the specifications for rock for, say, asphalt or concrete are really quite tight in the, the, the shape of the rock, how it has to um, hold together within that mix is, is really quite defined. And it's hard 
it hard, getting harder and harder to make those specifications. And so the equipment uh, evolves over time to 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 make the the product that that's required to make the roads and the houses and what have you that we live in. And the the consumables or the the parts of the machine uh, are also very complex in terms of how they sort the rock into different sizes and what have you. It's it's. Everybody, when they look at somebody else's industry, always thinks, "Well, that's kind of simple." But there's usually a lot more to it than than yeah. we think. And and this industry is one of those that yeah. on on the outside it looks simple, but rock is not just rock. I, I so, really like your your opening there, uh, making big rocks turn into little rocks because yep. I, I learned a ton from a fellow a long time ago who's an expert in continuous improvement and he would say that's what we're doing in continuous improvement inside companies we're helping people take the big rocks the big problems that they have and break them down into little manageable problems so that it all adds up mm -hmm. yeah yeah i listened to a fellow the other day who set the world's treadmill record for 12 hours um, and I can't, I can't imagine running on a treadmill for 12 hours. I think he ran 80 some miles in, in 12 hours on a treadmill. And I, and one of the people said, how can you do that at 11 at, at three seconds in, I'm thinking to myself, I've got 11 hours, 59 minutes and 57 <laughs> seconds left. And he said, you know, anybody can do anything for five minutes. And that's, that's how I did it, and so yeah, that that rock analogy. I'll have to use that because that that does make sense. You can anybody can do anything for five minutes, or when you break big rocks into small rocks, anybody can figure out how to how to do it. So right, and, and yeah. so so looking at sales, trying to figure out how to get your customers to buy and pay enough to be able to make money on them. I mean, that can be a big rock, also. And that's kind of the problem you're trying to solve here. Tell us, tell us what you faced when you started into this part of the business there at Elrus. How did it, what did it look like to you as the operating executive um, that led you to develop this approach? Well, let's go back to what triggered it. Um, in Canada, were the you know, we're we're an incumbent in Canada. We basically were part of the founding of uh, the industry back in 1975. Uh, portable crushing equipment was was a very undeveloped industry, and Roland, the fellow that founded the company, was that you know that typical entrepreneur. He he saw a problem because he was a crushing contractor, and he was really unhappy with what he was dealing with, and he solved the problem. He went and built. He he was he was he built equipment or had it built for him and wound up selling it before he could get ever get to use it. He never really got to use his own equipment. He he's huh. he built some equipment, showed it to a friend and a friend says, I want that. And then after three or four episodes, he's like, Well, hang on a second here. I might as well get into the equipment business because um I'm building something people want. And so this business got started and and it never really needed a a serious marketing and value proposition work or, or marketing work because Roland sold it and he knew everybody in the industry and life went on. Uh, we expanded into the United States in after Roland's death in, in 2013 and we 
we probably underestimated or overestimated overestimated our reputation and and uh, brand equity and and things that people automatically do when they enter a new marketplace. They assume it's underserved, and they assume that people know about them. And and we we had some difficulties in getting going and people to you know understand who we were and, and the differences that we made. And so that was our big rock. How do we get people to see us um, as different or see us as a viable alternative to who they use now. And um, I always come back to a process. You know, if, if you're having a, a failure of results, it's your process. Sometimes it's your people, but you need to look at the process first. And what is it about our process that uh, is not delivering the results. And I spoke to some of the buyers and I started to figure it out. And really, that's where I came to. Um, and, and a fellow that I work with uh, named Barry, Barry and I came to that you know, it's a multi layered issue. And let's break it down into the buyers, the, the product offering, and then the company overall. And how is it that value, what do people value? How do they how do they define it? How do they measure it? How do they um, how do they prioritize it? And and so that's what's led us to this homegrown approach, and and uh, uh, and it works. And so we're we're happy with what it's delivering, and we're we're making changes based on it. And I can't say that this is uh, this is something we've known for decades. This is something that really has evolved in the last year and a half within our business is this three-layered approach to what what do buyers value, what is our value, and then how do we communicate that. Okay, very good. So as we get into that, we're going to get into some details of it here. Um, mm-hmm. um, help us understand, uh, like, wh- uh, how are you guys organized? I know you have, like, isn't it seven locations in the U.S. and three in Canada, something like that? No, it's you uh, flip that. There's oh, eight okay. in Canada, and or, okay. yeah, there's there's three in right. three in the United States and, and eight in Canada. We're primarily in the Western United States. So, um, it, in in the continent of North America, primarily in the West, um, we get sand and gravel. Uh, sand and gravel is glacial till. So you've you, you've got rocks and sand and what have you, and you you basically it's it's like an open pit mine, and you you haul the stuff to the machines and it separates out the sand from the rock and then processes the rock and that's how you get sand and gravel. In the east, you tend to have uh, drill and blast. So quarries and South Georgia has a number of them that supply. Uh, Florida and others, where they'll blast rock or limestone out of a face, and then they'll process that rock. Our specialty is really uh, rock processing equipment that's on tires, so wheeled portable equipment. And it's a real feature of the western half of North America because it's primarily sand and gravel where we derive our rock products from in the west. It's used, wheeled portable is used in some quarry applications, but it's, it's more often a, a stationary plant that's affixed to the ground that's used in a quarry application. So as I said, this our, our focus is really on the Western U.S., uh, primarily Northwest Pacific, um, you know, Washington, Oregon, places like that. 
So are you selling to contractors who are building roads? Who are you selling to? Uh, we sell to contractors that build roads. We sell to construction companies that are vertically integrated that, that have the, the quarries and the gravel pits and also build roads. Um, we're selling to contractors who just crush, who go in and crush for people who are the resource owner. Okay. Um, so you've got every, everybody from the Lafarge Wholesomes of the world who are vertically integrated construction companies that do concrete and what have you to small independent companies that will go in and, and crush a couple hundred thousand tons for a, a landowner who happens to own the resource and, and he'll sell that to a Lafarge in some cases. It's, okay. it's a really quite a varied group of customers. And the salespeople, are they located in these um, offices that you have scattered around? Uh, they'll, they'll report to one of the offices. Many of them work from their houses. Okay. Uh, they're, some of them are, are six and eight hours away from that office, but they're closer to where their customers are. Okay. And how many salespeople altogether? Oh, <laughs> caught me by surprise there. Um, there's oh, just three primary salespeople in the United States and about 13 in Canada. Okay, fair enough. So, so now, you, how did you experience this problem as a, sort of a quasi-leader of sales that they weren't selling value? What, what was happening? Well, it really comes down to um, pricing. Like, you know, in... What I saw was is that some people were able to sell at, um, call it list price, and some people couldn't sell at list price. And why? And one of the things that came to me too was is that when you're dealing with some of these large companies and you have supply chain departments, why were we not getting into those supply chain departments and what is it that was preventing us from from closing a sale once we got into that supply chain department mm -hmm. and um this was really the the genesis of it is that why is this one guy successful and the other person is not successful when both of them are very competent salespeople and or i believe to be competent salespeople and why in this particular region um were we having problems and and so it was just understanding why there was inconsistency in results process variation that led me down this path and it was really you know why is this one particular person successful and not successful and what is his process and what is this person's process and what is that person's process and and this is where i really came to the realization that number one we didn't really have a sales process Mm -hmm. Or it wasn't consistent. It wasn't consistent across um, the board. And and number two, we didn't have and our sales process um, and the sales processes, sorry, that existed were also not comprehensive. They didn't go back to the um, customer stage where they realized that they needed to make a change. So our marketing process and online presence um, really wasn't thought out to the uh to the genesis stage where you know i've got a problem now i need to do research so what are we enabling the customer to do research on our website or are we just trying to sell product and these are things that we came to through the investigation and and, and reading your book was it was funny because i i read the book after i'd done some of the investigation 
And now I could just put names to some of the things I learned. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I got to some of the realizations. I, I looked at the book and I'm like, yeah, I really would, wish I would have read this six months ago because I, I probably wouldn't have needed to to bang my head against the wall for for hours and hours and hours trying to figure this out. But you know, necessity being the mother of invention really is how we got to this layered approach that we take at this point in time. Okay. Now, a lot of people in your position would start looking around for sales training. Why didn't you do that? Well, we did, actually. We did do some sales training. Um, oh. But what what happened was, and it was it was typical, it was traditional, it was actually some good sales training. It was we we wound up talking to some people that do training on or training to our customers on how to differentiate their rock products versus somebody else's rock products cuz you're really selling a commodity and how do you how do you differentiate your commodity from somebody else's commodity and we took that training and it was really valuable and we did do some more training um on with some other people and the feedback was is that yeah this was valuable but i'm still missing something and and i said okay what are you missing and he said i'm missing the story i'm i get that that you know here's how you sell value or here's how you talk about value here's how you deal with objections here's how you you get your nose in the door and here's how you organize your day I get all that. And it was great training and I'm glad I went down that path and thank you very much for spending that money. But when the, how am I different or how are my products different than somebody else's? And I still can't formulate that argument in a way that's coherent. We talk about features and benefits, but what's the difference it's going to make? And which buyers um, are going to get it and which buyers aren't going to get it? And how do I you know, in some cases, uh, I need to learn how to speak their language. And in some cases, I need them to start learning how to speak our language. And how do I do that? So it wasn't comprehensive enough. It was just the, the training we did. And I'm going to suggest that this is the same training that most people offer and is out there and what have mm -hmm. you. Just didn't get into the granularity that was required to make a customer realize the difference between one of our products and another one of somebody else's products and the difference that that machine can make in their economics and their operations and their safety and all those things. And so um, part of it was the way we, we realized the way we train and orient people in the beginning was incorrect. We, we weren't spending near enough time having them understand our difference but michael one of the things we really understood through this process is that we didn't understand our difference well enough either yeah. we didn't understand the value we didn't understand the value that we can deliver um as well as we needed to um we, we talked about features and benefits but we couldn't quantify what the difference was those features and benefits would deliver for the customer and, and this was the big aha for us is that uh, we we're not able to articulate our value well enough. So you've and, taken this big rock of variations yeah. in salespeople's performance, and some can sell at list price and some can't. And you gave them some mm -hmm. sales training. And 
you know, thinking that that would help break that rock down into something more solvable. And it did in part. But then you had salespeople yep. saying there's something missing. I understand the logic of that. But how do I make my know, you know, how do I deal with all this variation I'm facing as a salesperson, different products, different sales situation, different types of customers. So you broke that down into, well, what is value? And then you realize that you don't know what your value is to the customer. Am I following this correctly? Yep. Okay. And, so and the customer doesn't, well, and, and the customer didn't know what value was to them either. Um, Good. So, you know, we, what, what we found was, is that there's a lack of understanding of what value is in our industry, at least, and possibly in others. Yes. Um, and we, we couldn't, we couldn't communicate it. And other than them picking favorites because they liked somebody, they actually didn't know why they were buying, making decisions either. Um, and so what we came to is, is that we believe that value, at least in our industry, um, if you imagine a, a normal graph, you've got an X axis and a Y axis. Um, on the Y axis is the incremental economic impact of a product to that customer. So does it make a financial difference to that customer, that product or service that you sell? And we have some products that do make a financial impact uh, over and above other people's products. And we have products that really don't make much of an impact. They're, they're not much different than somebody else's products. And then on the x-axis, uh, really, we come down to trust factors. So if you look at your offering, does it make an economic impact? And if it doesn't make an economic impact, then um, or an incremental economic impact, pardon me, can they trust your organization to support the product? Can they trust your organization to help them when they're in a bind? Those are the kind of things that are on that x-axis, the, the, the fuzzy stuff. And we started to realize that we have an economic, an incremental economic impact in some cases that we're not doing a good job of explaining. And in the cases where we don't have an economic, uh, incremental economic impact, uh, we're not explaining how we support and, and make those customers successful on the uh, on the trust factors or, or keeping them out of jail, I guess, is the, one of the phrases we've used. You know, when they break down, we've got somebody that can be there in an hour to help them figure it out. When they mm -hmm. can't make specification, we can help them. So it, it's a multidimensional, uh, you know, w we had to understand what value was from our end before we could communicate it well on their end. And it's really um, interesting to talk about, talk to customers and 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 ask them lots of questions and and why do you value this and why do you value that and what you find is is that the customers really don't understand why they make buying decisions sometimes either and i guess that goes back to an assertion that somebody's always made that you know buying decisions are 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 psychological and justified economically after the fact yes yeah, there's more to it yeah. than just financial measurement. Um, there yes. is the trust factor. There's the clarity factor. I, this is, you're talking about this uh, little diagram. We'll put a, uh, a a slide or two up on the website to accompany our conversation here for those people who might be driving yep. a car and and be visual and want to see it. You had 
the way you described it here, I think if I'm looking at the right diagram, that the y-axis going up and down on the left side is the measurement system, their ability to know the value. And then the x-axis across the bottom there is buyer's acumen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's three, there's three graphs we use to, to basically just, uh, put this out there is the, the first graph is buyers and on the y-axis you have their measurement systems so their ability to differentiate value in the or economic impact and on the bottom you've got their acumen so their understanding of the difference between cost and price and um and their understanding of the value of say support and their understanding of the value of of technical advice the the, the fuzzy stuff on on the bottom the fuzzy stuff's always on the x axis by the way when you look at those graphs that's okay. for anybody who's going to so at one layer you've got buyers so on the x axis you've got the their acumen or their 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 ability to weigh out economic arguments and, and differentiate between suppliers based on what they know and what they don't know. And on the y-axis, you have their measurement systems. And we have customers out there that have the measurement system that allows them to know their life cycle cost of everything they use. And these oh, guys are the... customers, okay. Yes, and they are the A customers in my mind. These guys, these guys know what they need. They know, um, they know the economic impact. They know they're willing to do experiments because they know what something will do if it does work out. Um, there are great measurement systems make great buyers. So that's the first layer. The second layer is products. And on the, um, on the uh, Y axis, again, you have the incremental economic impact of that product. We have products that in some cases will last 10 times longer than other products in the marketplace in a particular application. And those products, in some cases, are priced three times what the other product is priced at. But when you think about it, you know, three times the price for 10 times the life, the cost is a lot less. And those are really unique products. Um, and we and we have products that have no real economic impact difference between other products. They're mm -hmm. they're just they're commodities. They're commodities like everybody else's commodities. But you got to have them. Um, and we look at commodities. How we differentiate on commodities is the the old saying: you can have it good, fast, and cheap. Pick any two. Right. Um, we try and have it on hand, and we try and uh, make sure it's it's decent quality. Um, but we always have it on hand. And when someone's broken down. Um, you're the hero when you've got it in stock. It may be a bearing that anybody can get anywhere, but one day you've got it and three other people don't have it because they're sold out. Um, you're the man that day. And we, we tend to get, uh, we tend to get that business because we've got it in stock. Mm -hmm. And then the, the third graph uh, really comes down to, uh, the whole offer that your company offers versus somebody else's and and on the left hand side it's really the same graph as the as the buyers or pardon me as the products whereas what's the economic impact of your products and services or the portfolio of your products and services on the whole do you can you make an economic impact to that customer that's above and beyond what another a competitive offering is um and this is something you have to understand holistically about your company. Do you have products that have an economic impact 
and do you have products that don't have an impact? But on the whole, do you can you make an incremental economic impact on those customers? Because if you can't, and some can't, just because of the nature of what they sell, then that bottom x-axis, which is trust factors or non-product attributes, so your support, your service, that's your only way to differentiate. Right. And it's har- it's harder to differentiate on those those on that x uh, or pardon me on that x axis because now you're talking about things that are fuzzy and hard to measure. You know? Right. How do you well, measure support? Well, and that's one of the reasons why many companies pursue operational excellence because they sort of have gotten into a place where they are a commodity. Everybody in their industry is a commodity, and they seek refuge in well, we're gonna be shipping on time more often, we're going to have more consistent quality, we're going to have shorter lead times. It is a hard way to live, but it is a way to compete. Yes, absolutely. And and um, uh, the, there are ways. The, the nice thing about the that x-axis or the, the fuzzy things is that there's always a way to differentiate yourself. You, you can you can always figure out a way to differentiate yourself, um, even on things that that are you know if your product can't be differentiated i remember being in the i was a commodities trader uh for 10 years i was a commodities trader for a company out of san francisco called wilbur ellis company and we differentiated ourselves in the commodities trading world by being uh having the best invoicing system going we would put out an invoice the next day and our invoicing was 99.997% or Six Sigma correct all the time. And we got business like our wheat was no different than anybody else's wheat. And we didn't grow the wheat. We just traded it. But we got business from a lot of other companies because of our invoicing, because they didn't have to have a staff of 30 people to, to sort out invoicing messes that would happen. And... You know, something like that can be a differentiating factor sure. if you can't have an economic impact. Um, and and understand that sometimes your price can be an economic impact. So if you've got the way to, if you figured out a way to manufacture at a lower cost and you can offer a better price and still make money, you do have an economic impact. Right. So it's the combination of the two. Um but if you have a great economic impact, you're hard to deal with, and your invoicing's never correct, and your your service is crappy. Um, <laughs> you're most not often the case. <laughs> yeah. That's the way things tend yeah. to entropy, right? Everything devolves into stuff is going wrong all the time, and that's the world that salespeople live in. Well, yeah, and um, and it's hard to run a good show. It's 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 really a sign when you see businesses that are thirty and forty years old. I toured a business here in um, in Indiana in early in the spring and these guys have been in business for 80 years and and they are not the most technologically advanced company out there in, in their product they, they do things in some cases the old-fashioned way and in some cases there's better ways to do it but I'll tell you when you break down um, they will put a guy on a plane or charter a plane if they need to to make sure you're looked after and their reputation is sterling and you can overcome, they overcome, um, I would say, you know, mediocre product development in some cases that they've got a tried and true product that works. It could be improved. Um, so it's not, 
a stellar product, but boy, I'll tell you, they got a reputation of when you're when, when you're down, they will hold your hand. They make sure that you get back running as fast as you can, and they and and they deal with things, and they'll move heaven and earth. So that goes back to that old adage: it takes the whole company to make the customer happy, not just operations, yes. not just the sales department. So let's get back to your sales department. You had these people yeah. in the field. They had differing skills, differing views of the world. And here you come up with these three different um, essential characteristics of value, right? Mm -hmm. the variation uh, in the customer and his ability to measure, the variation in the product and their impact, right? And then the variation mm -hmm. in... I guess the whole package of the company's offer. Have I got that right? Those are the three? Yep. So yep. How did you translate that into something that makes money for salespeople? Um, the, the place we started was the buyer. And how the impact it had, like when, when we explained, we, we explained it all, all three, all three graphs or all three concepts, and everybody intellectually got it. Like it just, it didn't take any time at all for people to get it. It was, it was like watching a, um, you know, it was, it was water's wet. <laughs> it was as true as that. Mm -hmm. And people just got it. And, and so in the presentation, in the first run we had in January with, with these concepts, there was about 30 people in the room and everybody was nodding their heads. And we, we went through it and we said, okay, now, where do you start? And the where do you start is the buyer. And what we decided was is that you know we need to um, we need to stop spending less time with buyers that have really poor measurement systems and and poor levels of acumen. Who the the people who just won't get it. Now that doesn't mean we're going to tell them that they need to go away or anything like that. We just if you call. And you need something, we'll treat you nicely. We'll make sure you're looked after, but we're not going to discount and we're not going to chase your business because you may never get it. So we're, you're not speaking our language um, so, and we're not going to speak your language. So you needed a way to help salespeople to prioritize buyers along this particular axis of quality or axis of value. If they could detect and measure the value to them. They had a measurement system and they could detect what was really financial value to them, then you're going to prioritize them higher. Yeah, and and so what it was is that if you could spend less time, if you can figure if you if you consciously spend less time with people who will never get it or won't get it, mm -hmm. you can spend more time with the people that will. Yes. And you'll get a higher share of their spend. Um, and that'll be a higher margin, generally a higher margin spend with a lot less problems. And, okay. and, and so our goal is to get a higher share of spend from the, the buyers who get it, who have great measurement systems, who have preventative maintenance systems, who, who great levels of good measurement systems, good business systems and, and high levels of acumen. If we concentrate our time on those people, we'll get a higher share of spend and we'll do better as a company than trying to be everything to everybody. And as a salesperson, you'll be more rewarded by by getting that higher share of spend with the people who get it. So that's yeah. really where we started is, is 
Um, did you, did you make we, a tool for them, or what did it look like? What did they? What, go ahead. Um, we we didn't really make a tool, but we said, okay, here are some of the signs. So if if your buyer does not have a preventative maintenance program, if they just fix things when they're broken, or they don't have a they don't have a system, chances are good they don't have a measurement system either. So that is an observable uh, thing about them yes. that gives the salespeople an anchor. I can point to that. Yep. Okay. I can ask the question to uncover whether they have that. Okay. That helps. Good. Yeah. And when you drive in the yard, what do you see? When you drive in the yard, do you see piles of, of gravel and what have you everywhere? Do you see machines that are broken down that are in the same place they broken down? They broke down. Um, a while ago, like, what do you what do you physically observe when you drive on site? And those two things, what do you physically observe when you drive on site? And do they have a preventative maintenance program? Were were the two insights that most people just needed to? Aha! Yeah, I good. get it. Good, good. You know, those are the two things that that start to tell me in my mind what I'm driving into and what these people get. Now, there are days when you drive in when something broke down. Um, there are days when you drive in and something broke down where it's going to look crazy. But on the whole, what do you see when you drive in and do they have a preventative maintenance program? Because if they've got both those things, there's a really high chance that everything else is going to fall into place. So what you just described is a perfect example in your world of what I was trying to write about at the beginning of chapter three, where you had those observable qualification criteria. Mm -hmm. um, so I presume then you created similar concrete observable things around each of these three categories. Is that fair? Uh, yeah. So what we did is is we uh, we brainstormed on uh, what do you see when you drive in the yard. Um, to differentiate buyers. And the other thing is one of the guys suggested, you know, if he doesn't have a preventive maintenance program, I generally don't spend a whole bunch of time trying to sell um, really high value products. I just basically leave them with a line card and, and go on my merry way. And that led us to products. And so we started talking about, and we, we had to come up with a way of differentiating products. So we came up with the products that delivered the most economic impact and were the most unique, we called diamonds. And and diamonds are really those products. Um, when when the iPhone came out, you know, it was a diamond. It was unique. Uh, it it had it had you know economic. It had impact. It was unique. So we look at products. You know, does it can a product deliver an incremental economic impact to that customer that nobody else can deliver? And is it unique? And by, by virtue of being one, it's probably unique anyway. So those are our diamonds. And in the middle, we have staples. Um, you know, they, they have some economic impact. Uh, other products probably have good economic impact, too. You can differentiate them slightly. Like, the, the, they have an impact, but it's, it's very hard to measure in some cases. Um, and... Uh, and they're not necessarily as unique, but they're mm -hmm. not necessarily ubiquitous either. And we mm -hmm. call those staples. Um, and we used uh, soap as a good example. Uh, soap's everywhere, but some people pay $20 a bar and some people pay four. Right. Or, and some people pay 50 cents. So we, we use that analogy. And then in the bottom, you really have commodities where they're ubiquitous. Everybody's got them. And 
they really don't have a economic or incremental economic impact in the marketplace. That you know, wheat's wheat is essentially the the, right. the or water's water is essentially what we said. And in those products, we compete by having them in stock um, when people need them. That's right. our biggest thing. Is right, we, right. we got to have them in stock. We we like inventory because it it. In a world where nobody likes inventory, we like inventory because when you got it, you're their friend. And this was our way of, you know, what's our catalog? What what products have we got? What products do we need to develop? And and this was the observable characteristic that we talked about when it came to products is that how unique is it? And then uh, we got people thinking about portfolio. How do you now put this all together? And when you go to a customer, what do you focus on? And what do you look at in their operation where you can fit? How does your portfolio match their needs? And it was a really good exercise, and we've seen some serious results from it. Um, and it's it's interesting that we've got customers that don't have the measurement systems and don't have the sophistication, and they're now coming to us as we start talking about this and saying, well, help me. Help me build a preventative maintenance there program. You go. Help All me build right. this. <clears throat> That's you know, so it's been a really, really interesting journey. It's it's and it's just really getting going. Um, and uh, you know, we're 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 working to develop some tools that will help customers actually develop some of the measurement systems they need and some of the the preventative maintenance and other systems that'll help them become better operators. So we have just a few minutes left here. Can you give us some examples yeah. of the results that you've achieved? And then we'll wrap up. Um, well, one sales guy, uh, salesperson, uh, be, what he showed was that he he was able to take the time. He dropped some, he, he went from a frequency of some accounts from monthly to, to every six months and spent more time on on a, a real a customer who has a fantastic measurement system and they really get value. And his share of spend has gone, we estimate, from about 40% with this one particular customer to about 70% because he's just able to, yeah, it's just amazing, the result. And and a couple of the customers he spent less time on phoned him and said, why are you spending, why aren't you out here? And he said, well, because, you know, you don't understand you, you don't have the ability to measure some of the differences in our products and what have you. And, and I know that they can make an impact, but until you can measure them, I really can't uh, do anything. And they said, well, come and help us develop this measurement system. <laughs> is, talk about voice of customer. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a win-win. Um, and we've had a number of other circumstances where people have said, you know, I, I've spent less time with these guys and they still continue to buy and they're buying just as much as they did before. But now I can spend time with the people who really get it. And what we're finding is, is that when we spend more of our time with the people that get it, those people are coming to us and saying, develop this for me. Help me with this. So, and go ahead. Totally changed conversation from a product conversation to a profitability conversation. So I so can imagine. Becoming, I, 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 I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. I want to jump in because there's an okay. observation here that that uh, I can hear yeah. some hard-headed executive, owner of a company, listening to this conversation, going, "But that's all common sense. How come they weren't doing that before? Why did you have to go through all this elaborate Six Sigma stuff to do that?" Uh, yeah, I, I wish I could give you. A 
a smart curt answer except that um some obvious facts are not that obvious yeah <laughs> or <laughs> they're not <laughs> or they're or they're obvious in the rearview mirror and i guess that's the way i would put that one is is that there's so many things in this world um that you see that you have the benefit of hindsight in saying well i know that well yeah but some at some point in time someone didn't know that and um yeah there's a lot more to there's there's always more to it than yeah looking at yeah it's common sense you you should know it but um it's there's a lot of things that are common sense that people just don't know i mean uh look at look at diet and exercise yeah it's common sense um and uh, north america's got a hell of an obesity problem so Oh, Tell boy. me how common sense helps you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I have talked to a number of entrepreneurs who struggle because they have some salespeople who can sell the most elaborate, most expensive stuff, and others who struggle to sell the basic stuff. And they work with those people, bringing in those big numbers, but then sooner or later, life happens, and that person has to leave. And all their knowledge mm-hmm. that they built up in their relationships go with them. And they struggle saying, yeah. how, do I, how do I build this stuff, I mean, a process should be in the company. When a salesperson comes in, they're the arms and the legs and the, you know, the mouth. But how do we build the knowledge into the company so that the salespeople can be more effective? And that your example describes that just wonderfully well. Well, thank you. Yeah, and we're 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 seeing an impact with it. It's if you use these, and you got to figure out your own system. But and this system might work for some, particularly in in a business to business where you're selling a physical good. Um, this system that we've developed could could probably work for a lot of people. And and you put your buyers through it, and you put your products through it. And, and in the end, you can put your salespeople and say, can you work within this system? And if you can, you should see results. And that system is, um, I guess I, I would say that in, in sales process excellence, we frame out the, the bones, right? The skeleton. Mm-hmm. What are the components that such a system has to have? Is that a, Would you say that that's fair? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because... When I looked at our system, our, our system assumed um, that the customer uh, was going to call you in the first place. And, and that's changed. I mean, people do their research online and, and we're looking at, so it was symbiotic. We, we, I read the book and I looked at it and thought, well, you know, we've defined our sales process from the point in time where someone calls us. But yeah. we haven't defined it backwards to the point where, hey, right. I've got a problem and I need to do some research. Right. And and we needed to go back and do that. You um, cannot define so, yeah, the sales process from the point of view of the salesperson. You can't do that anymore. No. No, and you can't and you can't define it from the point in time where you got a phone call because you, what you're doing is that you're 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 reinforcing your own bias in a way that um it's just like the guy who's looking for his keys. Uh, the guy stumbles, comes along and says, you know, why are you looking here for your keys? Well, because there's a light here. Uh, <laughs> keys were lost 25 feet away, but he's underneath <laughs> the street lamp because that's, that's right. where the light was. Yeah. Um, and so just defining your sales process from the point in time where you have contact and you have communication, you're, you're missing the point. There's, there's, there's a whole world out there. Those, those are the known knowns. Now you've got the known unknowns. Um, that well, you I have to it, work with. 
that part, that upfront in interaction, giving customers the information that they're looking for and putting it in the places where they are looking, is that the next part of your sales process that you guys are working to build out? Or is there some other bottleneck or challenge that you think is equally important? No, actually, that you, you nailed it. That's exactly where we're focused right now is that, um, you know, 20 years ago, you got a call when the customer said, or when the customer realized he had a problem 20 years ago, you got a call that minute. Now you get a call when you're one of two or three that they view can solve the problem. And um, so the, the whole world has changed. You, you don't get a call when they've got a problem. Now you get a call when it's determined that you can possibly help them solve their problem. So yeah, the level of research done online is, is, is way different now. And, and yes, this is something where that's exactly what we're focused on right now is that how do we nurture people through that research stage? Well, that uh, is super. And we would uh, like to follow up with you. I mean, thought leaders like yourself, who are inventing solutions based on your experience and experimenting with it and, having your salespeople answer the questions so that they themselves have some ownership in it and do some of it. We'd love to see how you do in the future as you work with these problems. So I'd like to invite you back at some point in the future when you're ready to tell us about that. Would that be all right? Sure, absolutely. Um, we're working on some stuff right now, and we're going to start rolling it out uh, late summer. And, um, you know, this time next year, we should have a really good feel for, for how some of the stuff worked and, and the impact it's had. And so I'd be happy to, to come back. And we're going to take the, uh, you sent me up a, a few slides before we had our yep. call here today, and I'm going to try to boil these down into one or two pages. And um, with okay. your permission, then you make sure I got it right. And we will post that on the podcast page uh, so that the audience has something to look at to go along with the conversation mm -hmm. that we've had. Um, Certainly. And, yeah. and if someone wants to learn more about Elrus or get in contact with you, how would they do that? So Elrus is real simple. Uh, E-L-R-U-S dot com is the website. Um, so, and uh, myself, just Greg Helfrich, H-E-L-F-R-I-C-H on LinkedIn. You can get a hold of me. Um, at the best place is LinkedIn. And... Uh, that's uh, easy, easy peasy. Um, you'll see a guy with uh, thinning, thinning hair on, on LinkedIn. And um, uh, if you want to learn more about uh, uh, what we do in, in the industry, lrust.com, um, a great website about quarries and rock crushing and what have you is the Ontario Sandstone and Gravel Association, uh, OSSGA. They have a great website in terms of, of how rock product is derived how the process it goes through, things like that. Um, there's other uh, national NSSGA, which is the National Sandstone and Gravel Association in the United States, also has a really good website understanding um, where rock products come from and, and how they're used and processed and stuff like that. So Super. Well, uh, thank you very much for volunteering this uh, information in your time and describing your journey. Really appreciate it. I know that uh, many people out there who come from, you know, seemingly mundane industries, but they're way more complicated than they look on the outside. A lot of people are going to benefit from hearing your story. 
Well, thank you. And I hope they do. And, and anybody who has any questions, by all means, uh, reach out through LinkedIn and I'll do the best I can to, uh, to help answer your queries. Super. Well, and to you and to everyone who's in the listening audience, good luck and good selling. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.